friends. Welcome back to the show. This is Dr. Jack. And a few days ago, I had a chance to sit down and talk to Dr. Bob Bauer, who is an instructor at Highline College. And I have to tell you that this was one of the most uh, enlightening conversations I've had with um, regarding his specialty area. So let me first just summarize a little bit of his professional bio here so you get a better understanding of who he is. And then uh, give you some of my thoughts, and then we'll run the uh, interview. I, 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 let's call it a conversation, okay? Anyway, Dr. Bob Bauer, psychology instructor at Highline College, where I also teach, where he teaches courses in psychology and death education. He, as a trainer for Living Works, he has trained more than 1,500 people in suicide intervention. Dr. Bob has written books and articles on grief and loss and has given more than 800 workshops across America and other places, including England, South Africa, Na Namibia, Philippines, Singapore, Australia, Canada, and probably more. Uh, he's the professional advisor for both the Seattle Widowed Support Group, um, which is called the Widows Information and Consultation Service and the South King County Chapter of the Compassionate Friends, which is a support group for, for parents and, whose children have passed away. Okay, well, um, yeah, so we covered a lot of topics, and mainly whenever, if you've listened to a couple of my episodes in the past, you know that I'm trying to humanize my guests, right? They're master's degree or doctor degree professionals, you know, who are, have great standing in the field and they're awesome instructors if they're instructors. And um, I just wanted to give them a chance to talk about their backgrounds so that if you're a student in psychology or a student pursuing any career, you'll get the feeling that, wow, you know, we're just a bunch of normal people who focused on a particular topic and made a career out of that. And and if we can do it, you can do it too. So that's part of the purpose of my uh, focus on their, you know, how they got there. I think you'll find that our discussion was just so so useful and valuable. So I don't want to waste any more time here. Let's just go ahead and play the interview. And I hope you get a lot out of it. Enjoy. Okay, I'm very excited to have Dr. Bob Bauer on the program this week, and he is one of my colleagues, and if you've listened to some of my previous podcasts, he's the third person from Highline College that I've been able to get on the air to have a conversation with, and the fun part is, is that I'm getting really to get to know them more so than if I you know, didn't have the podcast. So welcome, Dr. Bob. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. And do you remember how many times we met in person? <laughs> God, like two times, three times? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I know. I think maybe no more than twice, right? Yeah. 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 Anyway, so that's the weird thing about being a remote instructor. And and actually now because of Zoom, there's so many college meetings that are held on Zoom that I've gotten to see the faces of faculty and staff that I probably wouldn't even have the opportunity to, right? just by teaching yeah. online and living remote. Okay, and so I kind of want to go through sort of in the same kind of 
outline that I've done in previous episodes, which is to talk about my guests' uh, professional journey, kind of like their origin story. How did they get from from a young person to their professional you know, status today? So, Dr. Bob, how did you get started in the field of psychology or, or at what age and what stage did you feel like this was the way to go? I um, was a, a lousy high school student. I never got one A in high school. <laughs> and so the University of Washington, uh, which is in Seattle, uh, was not interested in an 18-year-old like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a new college had opened up uh, and uh, it was called Highline Community College. So I went there with eight of my high school friends, uh, six of whom flunked out. And uh, <laughs> this other guy and I survived and I got my AA degree at, at uh, Highline College. Wow. Then I went to Western for a year, uh, went in the Navy for a couple of years, hmm. got out of there and then uh, graduated from the University of Washington and then went on uh, right after that to Cal State University at Fresno. And then I ended up teaching for like nine years with a master's degree. Yeah. And where was that? Where was your, where did you teach first? Intro to psych. Intro to psych. Okay. 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 So you've been on the West Coast for most of your life. (laughs) I'm a a Seattle boy. I was born and reared here. Yeah. 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 I really love I love the Des Moines area. So every time I mention Des Moines, people assume Iowa. But yes. uh yeah, but if we know it's Washington's and the south part of uh we well, can't even really say it's South Seattle, right? It's like further, further south. Yeah. Um so it's not really Seattle proper, I I guess. But I, I love the Pacific Northwest too. Um so did when you say you were you were a bad high school student <laughs> I had a lot of fun in high school, all the <laughs> girls and the parties. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Uh, because I think a lot of young people uh, in school today, you know, when they see us, you know, professionals and instructors in particular, I, I'm a, and I was like this when I was younger, I just, just put them on a pedestal and just assume that, wow, they must have just been, you know, excellent and perfect or, or extraordinary from the age of five, you know, and just, you know, uh, 1600 on SATs, you know, that kind of thing, 4.0 GPAs and made it through school. But that's not really the case. I'm getting to learn from, you know, that y'all have similar experiences like I did, you know, just being yeah. lost as a young person. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And being fortunate to, you know, gradually find our way and, um, and find our profession. But you're right. I, and when I was, my parents never went to college. So when I was a mm-hmm. Yeah, Highline, you know, I, I didn't know what a master's degree was or a PhD because I'd never met anyone, you know, with that until I, yeah. you know, met my instructors. Yeah, yeah. So when you're in your, taking your classes at Highline at that time, did you have, or did you, at that age and time, did you envision a career yet, a direction yet? No, no. In fact, my first intro to psych class was, um, excuse me, kind of boring. Actually, <laughs> I, I saved my... Uh, textbook from the class and I show my intro to psych students my textbook and the textbook was boring and uh, you know but it was still like 500 pages and it was a and I got it used for and I show them this got it used for a massive price of eight dollars and 25 (laughs) cents and you know students like oh that's not what no that was very expensive back in you know the 1960s when I was a student so so yeah I gradually found my way and you know the good news about 
as we all know, a two-year school is they make you take a lot of different classes and you get to explore and then you start to settle in like, huh? So by the time I got to Western and then um, I got my BA degree in psych at the UW, uh, I began to really focus like, huh, yeah, psychology sounds like a good deal. Yeah. I feel like community colleges are overlooked by a lot of students, right? It's like a yeah. best kept secret in education. Yeah. So, yeah. It's like, oh, it's only a community college. I'm like, right. no, you can do your first two years, you know, for less expensive. You're maybe near your home. And then, and I'll tell you, when I got to uh, the UW, I did as well um, at the UW, University of Washington, as the students who'd been there all along. I developed my skills, you know, at, at a two-year school, and they served me well when I um, when I went on to my four-year school. Yeah, yeah. And so, so you were a transfer then, technically, right, to yes. University of Washington, right? So by that time, you had some already have your associate's degree under your belt. Mm -hmm. And what I like about community colleges, from the instructor point of view, because as a student, I never went through that process. I went straight to you know the huge university, like University <laughs> of Texas, right? That's where I went, where the classes were humongous and and as an instructor, I love the fact that our classes are small. And I think that's really a great benefit to students. To yes. help, yeah, help prepare them for the big, the big show, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I tell my students, in, especially in intro psych, if, if you were taking this class now from me at university, I'd be this big because you'd be in this lecture hall of three, 400 students. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember being at the upper deck, um, like in the cheap seats of a stadium for a chemistry class at UT, and <laughs> and we were all looking at you like, where's the instructor? Oh, that, <laughs> the dot with the light, with the overhead projector, yeah. And uh, and you would just use a, a Sharpie and write it on like this uh, rolling sheet of plastic that would be projected onto this huge projector onto the wall. And we couldn't read a word of what he was writing, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, so those are fun days. Uh, University of Washington. So so when, did you always major in psych when you transferred? Yeah, Is I that, did. Yeah. I did. At first I was, uh, because I went to Western, which mm -hmm. is in uh, 90 miles north of Seattle in Bellingham, I was interested in the teaching part of it, but then I also had to take some psych classes. And then I, once I got out of the Navy, then I moved over to psych. What was your master's degree in? It was in general psychology. General psychology. Yeah. Okay. And then from there. So I taught for nine years, uh, uh -huh. part-time, you know, driving up and down the yeah. freeway and teaching at any college that was open and sometimes teaching four or five classes, you know, a quarter, like a lot of Adjunct folks Adjunct, do, yeah. still do. And uh, then I, uh, in 82, I applied to uh, a doc a doctoral programs and got accepted at Peabody College of uh, Vanderbilt University. And so mm -hmm. then I went to school for four years and then finished up there. And then a couple years later, the job opening came up at Highline and um, I got hired in 88. Yeah, yeah. So your doctoral program, what was the specialty? Field, in social right? psychology social yeah. psych okay like sue yeah. franz that yes. yeah yeah See, I, I don't know these things you're you're my oh, colleagues really? but I, oh, yeah i don't i don't yeah. i really don't know what what each person yeah. specializes in in their degree okay another social psychologist that's great and my minor uh is in health psychology the mm -hmm. kind of decisions that people make about their body you know and that that really fascinated me especially with my background in grief and loss and so on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so that's a great segue and talk about your specialty so your specialty area is in grief, loss, uh, and I also saw that amongst your 
uh, talks that you do a lot of suicide intervention or, or prevention training, right? Yes. And so when, when did that become your specialty area in the course of your education and when you became interested in that, that particular side of psychology? Yeah, that's a great, great story. I've been teaching two years or so at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I, on the first day of my death and life class, I say to my students, and I point to some of them and say, where were you on February 4th, 1975? Right? And their eyes get wide and, <laughs> like, well, wait, you know, I said, well, I was getting ready to teach a class, a psych class out at Fort Lewis and the phone rings and it's my mother. And she is yelling and screaming and crying, saying, your father is in the hospital dying. Hmm. And then I asked my students, how many of you do not like to hear your mother cry, right? And here I was like 27, 28 years old. And suddenly, you know, it's like my dad's dying. So he was at um, the local hospital, Harborview Hospital. I drive down there and there's my mother with my two uh, brothers who were in their early 20s and my two sisters who were like 14 and 16 years old, and my mother gestures <coughs> over points, and I look, and there's my dad lying on a gurney, like, you mm. know, like he's sleeping, finding out later that he's in a coma. Oh, and no. so that, what, that started it. And there's a little more to the story. Then <clears throat> I uh, finally, they stabilized him about two in the morning. And so my brothers took my sisters home, and my mother walks out to the parking lot with me, and, and, because they said, you can go home, he's going to make it through the night, find out later he had a stroke, whole left side was paralyzed. Hmm. My mother, with tears streaming down her face, says to me in the parking lot, uh, two in the morning, um, I want you to tomorrow go out and see about um, setting up a funeral for your father. Hmm. And, you know, I'm the oldest of five kids, and it's like, okay. So the next day, I taught my psychology classes in the morning, and the afternoon, drove out to a funeral home, and he sat down with me. But as I was driving there, I remember thinking to myself, I'm like 28 years old. Yeah. I have a master's degree in psychology. I'm supposed to know some things about grief and loss and death and, you know, how to set up mm -hmm. a funeral. I don't. And then I realized, you know, if I don't know that much about it. And then there's probably a lot of other people who don't. So now uh, my father then was in a coma for a month. Uh, but in the next two months, he had his whole left side had been paralyzed. He learned how to walk again. And at the three month point at age 53, he walked out of the hospital and ended up living another 28 years. Wow. That's uh, amazing. He had this massive, fortunately, he was somewhat young. Um, mm. but so the next year, 1976, now <laughs> I'm in my office at Seattle central community college and there's a knock on the door. And this woman says, uh, we're giving grant money for people who want to create a, a, a new course. And I said, yeah, I'd like to create a course on, you know, on death and dying. And they oh. go, okay. So I fill out the paperwork. Committee came back to me later and said, the committee really likes your idea. How much money do you want? What grant do you want? Now, I never applied <laughs> for a grant. I have no idea. Right? Who gets that question? <laughs> yeah. That's like the and ideal. So yeah. Naively, I said, I don't know. How about $400? And the woman kind of smiled and like, okay. And of course, the joke is that summer, all the research I did, you know, 800 hours, I earned about 50 cents an hour you know, doing all this research. But now I was going to teach this new class. So this was going to be in January of 77. We're almost done with this story. Mm, no, thank and, you. Um, and I uh, found out a couple months before the class was going to start 
that they'd accidentally left the course off of the course uh, offerings. And, uh, you know, back then there was no computer. It was all paperwork. Yeah, said, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you know, it's, it didn't show up. So we're going to pass out a bunch of flyers, you know, around campus, and we hope it's going to work. So that January 1977, I walk into my classroom on a Wednesday night, first night to teach the class, and I look, no one's there. Oh, no. I'm thinking, oh, no. And then this woman walks in a few seconds later, and she goes, oh, your classroom has been moved down the hall. <laughs> I remember those days. Yeah. yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Like what? And uh, there were 40 people sitting there. Oh, and amazing. that was my first class. And oh. I've been teaching it ever since. And all my students know that of all the site classes I teach, this is the one that I love the most. And I used to call it death and dying. And my students would go, no, no, no. You got to call it death and life. Because we study death, oh. but we really appreciate life. So that's what's called. Yeah, that's, that's the great. story. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I remember looking through our own course schedule at Highline. I would see your name there with that course. And I've always been so curious about it. Like, Where did that come from? I've never seen it in any other department, right? Okay. Uh, you have the usual lifespan and social psych and, you know, psychopathology or what they used to call abnormal psych, right? And then yours just sort of stood out. I've always wanted to ask you about that. And this is a great opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, Back in 2016, when my when, in January, when my mother passed away, you actually sent me one of your books. Oh, really? Grief. Yeah. You, you no. don't remember, huh? No. And that was really meaningful for me. So, oh, you know, I, 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 at that point, I don't think I met you. Obviously, I think I was living in Taiwan, actually. And I got the news uh, that my mother was in the hospital and, and she had lung cancer uh, for many, many years, just surviving it not never just going through chemo for for at least a few years like four years and she was diagnosed with stage three or four and, and her life expectancy was going to be six months at the time of diagnosis but she was so healthy at the time i believe as a 70 year old and she did tai chi and it was just so unexpected never smoked right mm -hmm. and and apparently the oncologist said that as an Asian American woman who never smoked. This is just sort of such a rare case. But then she became his star patient because mm -hmm. she survived the treatment for so long. But yeah, it ravaged her though, obviously. I mean, she was very healthy and then she became just sort of like hunched over and a, sh a shell of herself. Mm -hmm. But when she passed and she was in the hospital, we didn't know, right? We didn't expect, you know, sometimes you can just sort of like, be mentally prepared because you kind of know someone's getting to that point. But my mom was surviving fairly well. You know, she would have her occasional bumps along the way. And we figured this is another one of those things that, oh, okay, she'll be in the hospital. She'll, you know, maybe she has a cold or something and she'll come back out. But then when, and so, so at that point, uh, then my dad said, oh, I think you may want to come home. Right. You know, I'm in Taiwan. You can't just like, you know, <laughs> the logistics of it. At that point, my wife and her, my mother-in-law, my daughter, we were in Thailand, right? Because we had planned an Asia trip, and they went out there first, and I was going to join them. And then we had this whole itinerary plan. So I'm in Taiwan by myself, and then we're on a video call with my wife, who's in Thailand, and with my sisters in Arlington, Texas, in the hospital. And then right, and during the video call, my mom passed, right? Oh. Yeah, and and. It wasn't the first call. I mean, we we had called for a couple of days, and it was I think the second or third day in the hospital she passed, and then they had warned me. And this is where I was trying to uh, scramble and get a flight home was because they said, "Oh, we're going to put her on um, the painkiller narcotic that you use for 
when someone's at that stage. Um, morphine. Morphine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One of those things. Okay. So she was on, and and we've all kind of sort of knew that. Oh, that's not a good sign, right? When someone's at that stage and they're they're put, putting her on morphine, and so that was my only regret was not being able to make it uh, home at that time. But when I did, you know, my sisters were there in person and trying to handle these funeral arrangements. And I'm going to talk to you about this part too. Is it? is how do you even have the mental clarity to make those kinds of arrangements, right? At a funeral home and making decisions in these catalogs, like you're buying a car, you know, and, and prices and and all that. And my sisters were going through that. Um, and then that's when I got the book, just in the mail, you know? And, and I think I may have told the, the department that this was happening, or, or at least my department chair coordinator at the time. And, uh, and that was very meaningful. And I, what I really loved about your book was that it was not overwhelming. It wasn't, you know, the 500-pound textbook. <laughs> it, it, but it wasn't just a pamphlet, right? It was just the right, very approachable book and, and easy to read through. And it was so helpful at the time that, and right now I think it's probably in my sister's house somewhere. Um, it ended up there. But, um, but yeah, so let's go ahead and dive into this because this and and is so relevant now because of the pandemic and and everyone's having a tough time. Mental health is sort of in the forefront of the news now, right? In terms of our awareness. So how is this? Uh, what are you, what are your general thoughts about this in terms of you know with your students and and doing your your talks and trainings and all that in the past couple of years? Yeah, well, one of the things that I did last year was um, I was uh, thinking about a workshop for um, Highline, and I began to put together a list of losses that mm. people might have experienced during COVID. And I ended up with like 42 different losses wow. um, that people experienced. And so we then had a workshop at Highline um, last year, mm. and I don't know, about 25 people showed up. This is on Zoom. And um, they then kind of filled out the form and then, and the workshop was really, what losses have you experienced and what have you gained from this? You know, mm -hmm. as opposed to just looking at the negative. Right. And it was very powerful. And um, I, it, if you remind me later, um, Jack, I'll send you um, a, a copy of it because um, okay. I've used it a few times over the past year. And it really, um, you know, kind of, People then begin to reflect on, yeah, I lost this and this and this, but what have I gained? Yeah, well, you know, I've gained this. And one of the things that my students often came up with was, especially early on in the in the COVID crisis, uh, they were living at home and they were, you know, getting to know their brother and their mm. mother better than they ever had because they had to live at home. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was uh, an interesting gain for them. They didn't think about it. And they realized, you know, one more time how important family was. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's a big thing. I think that we're, we're still processing, you know, what are, what are those losses? How do, how have I coped with them? How am I taking care of myself? What good things have come from this and how am I going to sort of move on with life, you know, despite this past two years of me being pulled down from it? Yeah. Yeah. So a list of 42, do you recall what were some of the ones that uh, many people mentioned or, or that you created from that 
from that list yeah. of 42. Yeah, I, you know, the big ones were um, interactions with, you know, friends yeah. um, and, and the face-to-face and the freedoms that they felt that they've right. lost that, you know, not being able to free to go to a movie or go bowling or, you know, um, do those kinds of things. And, um, you know, that, those were really, those rose to the top. You know, those were big ones. Um, can't think of any others at, at the moment, but those, yeah. those were really, for most people, that really was a big deal. Yeah, and I know it affected everyone of every age group, right? And, and like my father, who just turned 83 this year, it's very apparent, you know, what he's lost, right? In terms of the face of, because if you think about someone of that age who's retired, but still very independent, right? And his life was filled with social interaction. That was... Mm -hmm. That was their life, you know, just hanging out with good friends, talk politics, talk talk about the stock market. That's what they love to talk about, right? And then he's their informal Tai Chi instructor. They just meet up. Tai Chi is like an excuse just to meet up, right? Because mm -hmm. everybody just brings food. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, wait, wait, you're supposed to be exercising. What's with all this food? <laughs> and, uh, and so that was a definite. And then isolation, too. Even though he's healthy and independent, he still lives on his own, right? Even though, you know, we visit, you know, every month and everything. He's pretty much on his own. And he, amongst his friends, just have this, he talks about this collective depression, you know? And I never hear him use words like depression before, mm -hmm. right? It's just one of those things. And maybe it's cultural or, or whatnot, but he actually just, you know, said it out loud. And that, that a lot of his, his peers are, are, are frustrated and, and just down because of this, like you said, the lack of freedom, because that's, traveling and being with each other was this is their golden years right this opportunity to be free and visit their grandchildren and all that and so it was a really huge series of losses for them they're, they're still feeling it now yes yeah. yeah one of the things i say to my students and i've said over the past couple of years when this all started actually today march 4th was two years ago the last workshop that i gave face to face that with 100 oh, yeah. people in there you know and you think yeah. back on when was my last time to really interact with people but i say to my students someday this is going to be over someday you're going to look back on this because you know especially when you're young it's in your face you feel like oh my this is going to be forever right yeah. and i really want to give them that sense of perspective and and i want to say that to all the listeners as well you know here we are still in it but Someday you are going to look back on this. And I say to them, many years from now, you're, one of your children or your, uh, your niece or nephew or younger brother's sister is going to come to you with a picture of you with a mask on. And they're going to say, what? why did you wear this mask? What, what, what is this mask about, right? And then yeah. you're going to be able to tell the story of back in the olden days when, you know, everyone was wearing a mask. To really give them that sense that, you know, yeah, you are going to move on from this. It doesn't feel like it at times, but you are. Right, right. That we've we survived and lived through at least hopefully most of us did, lived through one of the most historic events in recent time, recent memory. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And here we are, you know, on top of that now, we're dealing, you know, with the war and mm -hmm. inflation and, you know, just some tough, tough issues that, um, again, hopefully, you know, we're going we're gonna to get through this. Yeah. Yeah. And just as a little tangent, you know, th this whole situation we found ourselves in you know as us instructors we moved online right For, and i was always online but you know others had to migrate online or do remote classes and did how did going remote affect 
your class in particular because of the subject matter. I imagine it's so powerful to be face to face. So, yes. so how was that transition for you and your classes? Yeah, that was um, that was a real challenge. You know, the good news is on Zoom you get to put people into um, small groups and they can still discuss. And in my uh, death class, I have to take work on a journal and sort of process mm-hmm. what's going on. But but it was you know very difficult to. Um, see them certainly struggle, you know, with things that anyone does when they take a class like this and then not have that face-to-face. And, you know, some of them would hang out after afterward and, you know, we could chat by Zoom, but but it wasn't the same. And, um, you know, we talked about loss, right? And here we, we got another loss, this face-to-face loss. So um, it was tough. Yeah, yeah. And what you said earlier about reframing, right? Talking about, well, what are some of the gains, even though we're in this very difficult time? And I actually did that with my father, not as a st- strategy, okay? It wasn't strategic, like oh, I'm in therapy mode or something, but it was just something I talked about. It's like, well, if you really put in perspective, you're you're 83, you're so healthy. You know, think about other people who are your age who are just in really poor health or just not alive at all. I mean, very few people that live to be that age, I mean, for him and being that active, mm-hmm. And that you still are able to communicate with your friends and still see them on a limited basis. And you can cook for yourself and drive a car, right? Mm-hmm. And and I can see, I just see his eyes open up and go, yeah, actually, because he does have a tendency to think, once he starts thinking negatively, it kind of spirals, you know, then it's sort of, sort of like, yes. oh, everything's negative, right? And I, I, I suppose a lot of people do have a tendency to do that, but... Uh, I think it is important. That, that was a really important point you made that we, we also have to just reframe and say, you know, what are some of the things we've gained from this experience? Yes. And, uh, okay. Uh, so in your classes, what from your students, you know, because it's sort of like crowdsourcing, you know, you, you can get information from them on how they're doing and maybe infer that that's how the general public is, you know, coping with, with life now, um, what uh, what are some of the biggest myths I think, or misconceptions about the subject area of grief and loss that you think most people have that yeah. we can sort of set straight and just say, hey, it's not really like that. It's really you know more like this. Yeah, um, a lot of my knowledge comes from. I'll give the answer in a second. Comes from. Um, parents that I've met, and this may sound like an exaggeration, but it's not. I've met thousands of parents who've experienced the death of a child mm-hmm. because I get invited to their conferences and I get workshops and they come up and talk to me and so on. And I deal with widows too. I'm the professional advisor for the local widow group and the local group for um, bereaved parents, which is called Compassionate Friends for any of your listeners who know someone who's experienced the death of a child. Just go online for um, www.compassionatefriends.org. It's a national organization. They have 700 chapters across the United States. They are totally run by parents and so on. And so mm. they, um, yeah, it's a great, you know, it's a great organization. And give me the question again. I started, <laughs> well, some of the, what are some of the myths about this sort of general, yeah. yeah, general subject of grief and loss? Yeah. So one of the things, again, I've learned so much from them is that you do not get over a significant death. You get different. Mm. When a child dies, I say to my students, how many of you have a father or mother who's still alive? 
and they raised their hand and I said, your job is to outlive your parents. You do not want to make your parents bereaved parents because this is something they will never get over. Now they may, you know, years as years go on, they may look okay and walk and talk okay, but it's always there. They're never gonna forget the fact that this child has died. For example, hmm. a week, let's see, uh, two weeks from today, one of my guest speakers that I invite all the time, his daughter was murdered oh. 34 years ago. And hmm. I want him to come in every quarter because I want my students to see that he still talks about his daughter and he is still in grief from it. Now, if you just met him on the street and, you know, he'd be laughing and having a good time. But so that's the number one myth is that mm. you don't get over it. Yeah. Number two is, and we all hear this, and of course we know that everyone grieves differently and no yeah. one goes through, you know, these perfect stages and so on. And number three is that, you know, some people cry a lot and really have to talk about it and really show all their grief in order for them to get better. And other people don't. Yeah. A fourth one is um, uh, the fact that you don't really say goodbye to a person who's died. I, I wrote a, I've written mm. like 100 articles on grief. Yeah. And uh, one that I wrote a few months ago was called Saying Goodbye to Goodbye. Okay. Mm. Um, and because you always, you know, uh, yeah, you can say by the body and the fact that they're not going to be in your life anymore. But what do we know? We know that people still talk, you know, to their loved ones who have died. They still mm. look at pictures. They cry on their anniversary. You know, they, um, you know, my mom died in 1991. And uh, only about six or seven years ago, my wife and I were on a cruise and uh, they had uh, um, people stand up. Uh, uh, it was like a uh, what a, a show where people a talent show uh -huh. and one of the people got up and the guy starts singing a song that my mother used to sing my mother was a terrible singer hmm. and it was an old song called rhinestone cowboy okay? oh, yeah, yeah 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 this is like 25 years after my mother died hmm. he's he belts out this song i burst into tears wow right yeah Grief doesn't ever entirely go away mm -hmm. with a significant loss. And, mm -hmm. and that's a big one, right? Um, that yeah. we always have a connection with that person in some way. And it's okay to. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like this idea that people in our society talks about is gaining closure. So is that is that what you're saying? That there's really no such thing as closure? Whoa. That we have this expectation that yeah. somehow it's like a chapter that's over and we go yeah. on? Yeah. Oh, you got me on that one. About 20 <laughs> years ago, hmm. I did an analysis of online and newspapers and TV and radio uh, and the kinds of things that journalists say to people who have experienced the death of a loved one. And so I put together a little uh, acronym, if I can remember. It's called CHARGE, the first letter of each of these. And these are the kinds of words that journalists use when they're interviewing a brief person but rarely do you see the person in grief use these words wow. and the c of course you got it stands for closure, closure yeah. whenever i hear that i just cringe do you now have closure it's been you know they, they here's, here's a big one i i uh, um the man who's going to come and uh talk to my class about the murder of his daughter um you know we have a hmm. Uh, book that we put together and he says you know uh they captured the guy he's uh now been found guilty you walk out of the courtroom and uh the the uh, prosecutor shakes your hand and your loved one's still dead right yeah, but the yeah. media say he has closure right right, okay. right and so the h is heal right 
healing, I understand that, but no one gets healed where they're back to normal, right? Yeah. And A is acceptance. You, you know, must accept this. It's like, no, right? And R is like, you know, recover, right? mm. recover from grief, like you recover from anything else, like, no, okay? And then the um, E is end it, and, um, and the G is get over it, right? Get over so it, So you yeah. hear all these words, but that's not how, you know, uh, the people that I work with talk about their grief. Yeah. So you hit it well, that closure thing. Closure, like, yeah. My wife has, has to hold me down when that comes up on television. <laughs> I'll have to remember that. <laughs> closure is a trigger word for you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, we know. Hold him down. Hold him yeah, down. Yeah. Or or the idea that we need to move on, move forward, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, right? I mean, yes. yeah, at some point that kind of makes sense. We we have to survive this and and yes. uh and but perhaps we can just shatter this myth that there is such a thing as returning to normal. This is based right. on what you're what I hear you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Bereaved people want you to know that you never get over it. You're you're different. And that's why hmm. especially bereaved parents lose friends. Okay, my, mm-hmm. you know, my guest speaker, his name is Lou, um, you know, as the months went on, you know, his fr- a few of his friends that he thought would always be there because yeah. they can't handle the fact that, that, you know, they want the old you back. And you know oh, what? Right. You're not going to get it back. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a good lesson for the listeners out there who may be that support, maybe that neighbor, maybe that friend of someone who lost someone's of significance, right? in their family or a friend, that kind of thing is to not expect your friend who's grieving to be their old self again. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You'll see parts, bits and parts of, of the old self and, and that can fool you at times. You know, they're laughing again. They're like you say, moving on with life and so on, but still there is that, you know, that loss, that grief. I, I wrote an article about a man who sent me a fairly long letter. He had heard me talk before and he said that his father had died from suicide 30 years ago. And he went in and, you know, I mean, it was a shock to him. And he went in because he has a, a, a police background and helped clean everything up and back, you know, pack all his father's stuff up. Yeah. And people were saying, oh, you know, you're so good. 30 years later, his wife dies and he totally fell apart. And then he realized that he hadn't even processed his father's grief. Yeah, right. So it's one of those where you pay now or you pay later. And right. um, it's okay to cry. And one of my you know, one of the worst sentences you can say to somebody is don't cry. It doesn't matter right. how long it's been. You, you let them cry until they're dry. Yeah. Yeah. You do see people saying that even now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe yeah, that's something. For themselves. Right? Yeah. You know, I, right. I don't like you. It hurts me to see you cry. So don't cry. Like, right, no. right. It's uncomfortable for me to witness it is really what yes. they're saying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's more for my purpose, not for your, your healing. Yeah. Yes. So what about this term healing? Um, how, how would you, how does this fit in? Um, it, it, I, I think we're all healing because we have to, you know, yeah. we have, I tell my students, I know what's going to happen the next time a loved one died, even though, I, even though I don't know you personally, when your next significant person that's going to die, what's going to happen is the next day you're going to get up. If you're going to, that night you're going to try to go to sleep. Maybe you won't, but there's going to be a next day. And you're going to say to yourself, my God, they died yesterday. I can't believe this. And then it's going to be a week and then a month and then six months. And whether you like it or not, you're going to have to move on. Okay. And for many, especially parents who've experienced the death of a child, for some of them, they think I'm going to let myself die. 
I'm not going to eat or what mm. parents sometimes say to me, I'm driving down the street, a semi is coming toward me. I'm not going to get out of the way because if I die, it'll stop the pain and I'll be with my child. And so mm. I tell, especially bereaved parents, if you have those kinds of feelings, those are normal because you're hurting so much. Yeah. So healing is, you know, yes, you are moving on with life, whether you, whether you want to or not, but to finally get to the point of healed, right? I am yeah. now, you know, all, all done with all this, that, that for most people doesn't happen. Yeah. So healing is a lifelong process. Yes. As opposed to a state that you're trying to reach. And then yes. like this whole chapter analogy, right? Then you're on to new chapter, right? And then, then that's not supposed to bother you anymore. Yes. Right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, let me segue into what you just mentioned in terms of uh, suicide. And I know you do workshops on suicide intervention, and this is also another subject area that I think maybe lay people don't necessarily have, uh, or may have some ideas about as well as, you know, misconceptions about. So what are some of the common things with regards to suicide prevention or, or just the act of it itself that you, that's worth mentioning here to, to talk about? Yeah, good. Well, um, somewhere on 80 to 90% of all people who die from suicide had given some clue ahead of time, mm. have said things, things like, um, you know, I'm depressed, or they're giving things away, or, or words like, you know, you won't be, I won't be around anymore, or they're making, quickly making funeral plans, or trying to get their will done. Any individual one of those is not a factor but it but it accumulates so part of it is and second is that if you suspect someone who might be suicidal um then you you ask and i really work hard with my students on on getting them uh, to ask and basically when i give this lecture i go around and i have each of them ask me if i'm suicidal i've oh, wow. um, had thoughts of suicide are you, are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking about taking your life? Are you thinking of killing yourself? You know, so that we, because it gets caught in our throat. Mm. And the idea here that some people have, they have this fantasy that if I uh, bring up suicide uh, uh, and the person's not thinking about it, the person will go, suicide? No, but now that you mention it, that's right. a great idea. Right. Yeah. Somehow that pushes that's them you. over the edge, right? Yes. Right, right, exactly. yes. Like, no, I tell my students, this is a no loss question. Hmm. Either the person breathes a sigh of relief that you've spoken this unspeakable, or they really aren't suicidal. And then you say to them, but you're going through this and this and this, how are you getting, you know, support and help from that? And maybe they can convince you or they lie to you. And I say to my students, how many of you have someone in your life that if they were in that situation, they try to lie to you, probably figure out that something's going on, right? And then you're like a pit bull, you're not going to let that go. So, hmm. so it's finding, you know, now they've said yes, then find out what their method is. Okay. Right. And find a way to put some distance between them and their method. And yeah. um, and also don't be the only person. You know, hmm. sometimes we get caught up, especially early on when we're helping other people where the person says, I only trust you. Don't tell anyone else about this. You're you know, you're the person that I right. like. No, you say to them, I care too much uh, for you or for us not to get other people involved. Who yeah. else can we call and talk about this? and then get other resources out there. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because I think the person the, the person will will pull that guilt card that, you know, that if you're my friend, right? Yes. If you're my best friend that you're not going to tell someone, right? That, right? that somehow it's a violation, so that person may not get extra help because they feel like it's a violation of their 
there's some, some sort of uh, bond or, or friendship. But and what I do is I really push my students to say, um, you know, in an ideal world, you're not going to sneak around and call their mother, or call their wife or whatever. You're going to urge them, nudge them to do the call, right? Mm -hmm. To get someone else involved. You know, it's like, no, who else can you call here? There's got to be someone else that you need that can you need to tell them about it. And you need to say the word suicidal because that's what's going on with you. And yeah. so you find out what method it is. And if they're, if it's right in front of you, find a way to put distance between them and their method. You know, mm -hmm. what we know is the gun, gun ownership has gone up over the years, and especially among women. And there's a concern now that because uh, women have, you know, this easy access to firearms that their suicide rates are not going to start increasing. Right. Right. That's, that's very scary. And yeah. every year suicide rates, rates, you know, per 100,000 continue to go up. We're at 50,000 a year now. Jeez. Yeah. And I remember reading this statistic a long time ago, and you can tell me if it's still true, that uh, women attempt more than men, but men die more than yes. women. It's about three times. So yeah. three times more women attempt, three times more women die. Years ago, I was teaching this out at Fort Lewis, you know, 25 soldiers sitting there. And I, I said, why do you think that? And an 18-year-old soldier jumps up and said, because when men start out to do it, they do it. You know, and he sat down being a real proud macho boy. <laughs> and I said, well, it really has more to do, as you might guess, with method. Men method. are more comfortable with more lethal methods, of course. The main method uh, in more than half of all suicides is a firearm. Yeah, yeah. Whereas uh, women tend to use perhaps uh, medications, right? That's correct. Uh, or or the slicing of the the wrist, that kind of thing, yes. where there's an opportunity for someone to intervene and yes. get saved, right? Yes. Yeah. And young people, teenagers, for example, are more likely to die from hanging mm. um, because they don't have access to guns. Uh, and they're also, for many people who consider hanging, that they have in the back of their mind, well, I can always change my mind. And what happens is after a few seconds, the blood supply to the brain gets cut off, the person gets woozy, they get warm, and then yeah. they die. Um, and maybe they hadn't been there that 100% intention. Yeah. So let's follow those inter intervention steps, right? So you got to the point where you're talking about suicidal thoughts and, and method methodology, right? And as part of the intervention, what about this? What does someone do next if someone is just so desperate and hopeless, right? And as a friend or as a sibling, you, you can't be their therapist, right? In that right. sense. So right. what does this person who's intervening do? What should they do to get them to the next stage of safety or help and professional help? That's a great question. Yeah. One of the, um, the main thing is you keep them safe for now. What you'd like to do is keep them safe for the rest of their life, right? Mm -hmm. What you'd like to do is solve all their problems. Right. You're not going to be able to do that, right? There's a lot that gets people to, you know, that point of wanting to take their life. And you don't leave them as long as they're still at risk. And you continue to appeal to them to get someone else involved in this. And they're going to need counseling, right? You know, families are, can be supportive, but they're not usually not good enough to, you know, help the person um, get what they really need. So safe for now is yeah. a big one. If they mm -hmm. have the pills and they have them right there, if they have a gun or, you know, whatever it is, right, can we take this and put it over here? Let me, you know, let me keep it for a while to keep you safe. And amazingly, if you're a good listener and you've really, you know, established that bond and trust with that person, they're going to tell you that they're suicidal and they're going to tell you their method. 
you yeah. know, for many of my students, I'm like, well, I think would tell yes, because you've established this relationship. Yeah. yeah. By the way, for those who want would like to get it, listen to a or see a presentation that I gave years ago on how to be a good listener, you can go on YouTube and and uh, put in my name and mm -hmm. put good listener, and I have yeah. like 21 steps for good listener. I'm going to do my best to link everything that we've talked about today. Oh, okay. Yeah into the show notes. So whether it's that YouTube video or, or those other resources you mentioned earlier in the show, then then they can just sort of scroll down and find it. Uh, but yeah, I didn't know that existed. So I'm, I'm going to watch it too. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And so it, it, it does remind me back uh, because my doctor's in counseling psych. So it reminds me of my training when you talk about developing this uh, uh, client uh, therapist relationship and building trust. So it sounds like as a good friend, they can also build that sense of trust there. And also that being a good listener doesn't mean trying to repair anything and fix anything, but it's just being present, right? Just being physically present, being there, like you said, staying with them, helping them feel safe, but take that pressure off yourself in terms of you have to be the one to fix things. Right. And then I think it makes it a lot easier to just simplify everything. Just, I just need to be here for this person. Right. 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 Yeah. No, you hit it exactly. And, you know, we have this tendency to, to, have you tried this? What about this? What about this? And then, you know, and the person's no. And, you know, of course, when someone's depressed, um, you know, I talk to my students about, they see the world through depression colored glasses and they yeah. just see the world differently than you do at the moment. And you're not going to talk them out of those feelings. Right. You're going to get them to the point where they can get some help to process those feelings. Right. And it's a long-term that depression is a long-term issue. It's not as if you can take them bowling and they're laughing and you, you assume that, Oh, they're not depressed anymore because they have a smile on their face. But a lot of people with depression can still function at a certain level do their job and hide it, do, do a yes. good job putting on a mask and hiding it from people, right? That's valuable. Yeah. You, you hit it right, Jack. Yeah. Yes. And um, so would it be appropriate for this person who's intervening? Because I'm, I'm, I'm imagining someone who might be facing the situation and they're doing all of the things that they're supposed to do, keeping that, that friend safe and, and being that at their place and, you know, just sort of hanging out with them and make sure they're okay. Um, would it be appropriate to just physically take them to an emergency room and, and you know, that kind of thing? At, at what point do we physically move this person to uh, a place where they can get professional help? Yeah. I, I would only do the physical thing if there's no one else that's going to do it. What you want mm -hmm. to get is, you know, a, the help with the person who's really closest to that individual. Right, right, and right. Um, uh, so in the meantime, you continue talking to that person and urging them to call and contact, you know, whoever else can, you know, can spring into action. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, for example, every college, as you know, and I don't know if the listeners know this, yeah. has a counseling department, right? And so if you're a college student, and, and also let me give you a, a little secret that a lot of people don't know about Highline, is that they will see a non-Highline student on a one-time basis. So if you have a friend who is, uh, you know, dealing with tough issues, and they're not even in college, you can then contact you know, our counseling department and say, can you see this person on a one-time basis? And then they will set it up with that person and then help them, you know, uh, get connected with someone in the community. Yeah. 
Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 I did an episode on the, you know, that the college counseling center is the best kept secret on campus and it's free and and student fees have paid for it. And because I think a lot of people think counseling, they think, oh, they're there to to talk about my classes, study skills. And yes, they do that in that department, but they're also licensed professional counselors. It's real, real psychological therapy. So, oh, I I guess the next thing was, you know, if someone is in, you know, we have listeners from many different countries, actually, not just within the U.S. So that might be something if they're a student to actually ask their counseling center, if they have a similar policy of this yeah. one time, you know, bringing someone outside of of their counseling center, you know, outside the, the, the student, their non-students, whether they can bring them. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, Dr. Bob, this has been fantastic because we've we've covered a lot of ground in terms of uh, grieving and and the the expectation that someone shouldn't feel like they've gotten to this healing point and then they're going to move on and be the same old person. I really feel like that was such a significant point made. Um, And also with regards to suicidal intervention, just being open and direct, not being afraid to say the word to this person you're worried about. And these are things that, you know, a lot of people don't know. And that that's the beauty. I also have a suicide intervention workshop that I gave in Juneau, Alaska, um, several years ago that is on YouTube as well, that mm-hmm. people can click on it. Um, and that'll go a little deeper to into what we talked about today. Yeah, yeah. And your website um, also has a lot of valuable information and a whole list of books. How many books right. have you written? It looks like a really long list. <laughs> Eight or nine. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I, I find people who are, you know, experts like my friend whose um, daughter um, was murdered yeah, and yeah. another man who's an expert on suicide. And so we co-author, yeah. you know, these books. And uh, the one I gave you, I, I, you know, all my books, I solicit help from, so like 45 people contributed wow. to the Brief 101 book that, that mm-hmm. you have. Um, yeah. And rather than me just sitting here going, oh, here's my, you know, pontification, you know, it's like, no, here are people who've experienced, you know, themselves this grief, and they then read the earlier drafts and give me feedback. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh, We're running a little short on time now. So I think we're running up to the hour. And we've covered a lot of uh, great topics today that were very informative. Dr. Bob, you're a treasure for Highline. (laughs) You, you. You mentioned to me, and, uh, and I'll edit this out if, you know, you don't want to talk about it publicly, but you mentioned to me that you're, you're going to retire, right? <laughs> you don't have to edit it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's people, not a secret, right? <laughs> not a secret. I thought people would say, I'm retiring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think this would be an interesting question. We could spend a couple minutes on this. So what, what do you envision retirement, retirement to be for you? Uh, well, you're going to help me with it. You know mm-hmm. that. Don't you? You're going to yes. help me because I'm going to. I wanted to do podcasting, yeah. and my friend Dr. Jack Chuan is going <laughs> to help me move forward on this on this dream. So um, yeah. that's one thing. And yeah. also, I'm putting my books on uh, audiobooks now. So I just oh, did my, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I did my first guilt book, which took nice. fifty hours to do <laughs> pages because you know all the glitches. Yeah that we do when we talk. So, yeah, so that, and, uh, you know, people still, you know, ask me to give workshops, for example, Mm -hmm. two weeks from today, I will be in 
Hawaii, given a workshop, wow. um, two workshops, uh, one on um, coping with sudden death and another yeah. one on the pain of grief. Yeah. And so I that my guest speaker is going to come in while I'm gone. So, um, yeah. so that's the cool thing is that, you know, I keep getting invited to places. And, and again, my mentors have been people who've been through it. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been to how many continents to do talks? You, you, I don't know. You... <laughs> Four or five. Yeah. <laughs> That's really impressive. Years ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fantastic. Very lucky. Yeah. So it, it's, this might be a good lesson for the future psychology professionals that, that, you know, you can take your passion or personal life experience and carve out a specialty area that is a value, right? Um, that people will search you out to talk yes. about. Yeah. 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 Never believed, you know, on February 4th, 1975, that it would set me on a course that would literally change my life yeah. and, the, and the life of a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, this has been very valuable. And uh, thank you for your time, Dr. Bob. And, and I promise I'll have you on again when your podcast is ready to go <laughs> to promote it. All right. <laughs> right. Great. Thanks, Dr. Jack. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Bob. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, friends, maintaining our mental health is not easy. And the good news is that therapy does work. And what is therapy? It's really whatever you choose it to be. It can help you with your motivation. Maybe you're feeling stuck and you need some extra tools to help get you unstuck. Maybe you're feeling insecure in a relationship or having issues at work, or just dealing with daily stress. So whatever it is you need, it's important to overcome that sense of shame about getting help because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, or live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So, join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself and your mental health. So, I have a special offer for Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash psychexplained. That's betterhelp.com slash psychexplained. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast.